Set Phasers, a highly illogical Star Trek podcast. Set phasers. A highly illogical Star Trek podcast. Indeed. Which we are doing. So it is Stardate 20918.6, where we shall be discussing season two, episodes three and four of Star Trek Discovery. And uh, strap in tight because things are about to get quite bumpy. Uh, without further ado, Perhaps we should uh, run it down. It's time to run it down. Can you run it down for me? What just happened? Can you run it down for me? Yes. You know what I forgot to mention in the cold open? This uh, sweet, sweet mug that arrived oh, in the yeah. mail for me. I was like, where did this come set? Phaser's a highly mm. illogical Star Trek podcast mm. mug. We feel official now, don't we? I'm drinking my coffee out of it, and I feel very futuristic, very optimistic, and very driven. We have our mugs. Yeah. We sure do. <laughs> drinking out of, we're drinking out of our mugs. I love the taste of coffee in the star date 20918.6. Morning. All right. Season two, episode three of Star Trek Discovery is called Point of Light. And uh, I did put a note on my chart, uh, Nota Bene, the previously on Discovery. Nota Bene. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went to public school. The previously on Discovery segment is stated by uh, Laurel in Klingon. So instead of saying previously on Discovery, yes. it's just like blah, 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 Discovery, which is cool. I was like, is this going to be a Klingon episode? And it show is. All right, so we begin with... Uh, My neighbor has moved back in, and he's an elephant. Oh. He is not light on his feet. You know what? The delivery on that joke was <laughs> impeccable. It wasn't even a joke. It sounded like a Borscht Belt 1930s joke. <laughs> My neighbor's moved back in, and he's an elephant. Mm. <laughs> that was great. Uh, Dumbo. Well, what's his name? Yep. Dumbo. My neighbor Dumbo's moved back in. And boy, are his ears tired. All right, so. we Yeah, that's right. I give as good as I get. You sure do. We're going to say, uh, it begins with, with Michael giving her own star date, 1029.46. This is star date. And they're still sort of working out what's going on with these seven red signals mm. that make no sense. They are trying to figure out what they are and how Spock could have seen them before they appeared in the night sky. And as she's wondering about this, she walks out into the hallway, boom, into a trainee half marathon. And it's all the trainees in the command training program doing a half marathon. Tilly is among them. She is still being plagued by uh, this, this May Ahern character who is a friend of hers who died several years ago. And so it's a figment of her imagination. She actually literally runs through this May Ahern 
and only Tilly can see her, and she's worried that she's mentally unfit, and so she runs away from uh, the specter of May and actually wins the race, uh, which Saru is running. Saru is running the command training program aboard the Discovery, which I thought was sweet. Uh, we get our only alert of the two episodes, a yellow alert at this moment. There's an unidentified craft. Boom, we go to the bridge. Uh, Pike calls Owashekun Owo, which I thought was cute. Uh, and uh, they don't know what the ship is, and they're not answering to hails, but they have a diplomatic, uh, like, uh, registry number. And it, as they are able to get visual uh, ID on it, it is Sarek's ship. So they think, oh, it must be Sarek, who left to go work with the Vulcan High Command on starting a task force, figure out what's going on with these red things in the sky. And so there's a little bit of hemming and hawing between Michael and Pike because Pike has already has now alerted uh, Starfleet to the fact that Spock had checked himself into a psychiatric unit, even keeping a secret from everyone, including Spock's parents and family. Uh, but Pike says, hey, look, we got to do what we got to do. He sends Michael down to the transporter room. The the This diplomat beams in. It should be Sarek, but tis not Sarek. Tis Amanda, uh, Michael's uh, foster mother. Uh, and so Amanda, Sarek's wife, shows up. She hugs Michael, and they, she's like, do not react. You're Spock's only hope. You must help him. And boom, we go to credits. So we're, I mean, I still have no idea what's going on in this episode at this point, but it's pretty exciting. When we return, finally, that Klingon business from the very, very beginning makes some sense because we are on Kronos with Lorel, and she's speaking to the assembled uh, great houses, great families of Kronos, and they're talking, and they're showing the new ship that the uh, Klingon Empire will be using for all their forces, the, quote, D7. Looks a lot like a bird of prey to me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yes, the Klingons all have hair. Everybody got hair. Yes. Including, and most notably, and might I add, sexily, Ash Tyler. Got a sweet ponytail, sweet, sweet beard. He is looking, I don't know, maybe everyone doesn't agree, but I'm thinking he, he's looking good. He looking good on Kronos. That's my feeling. Fair enough. Ash Tyler. Right, I mean, fine. you know, well, listen, hey. a lot of facial hair doesn't do it for me, but. Doesn't float everyone's boat. Sure. But I like, he looks sculpted. You know what I'm saying? The face looks cool. Okay, I won't dwell on this. Anyway. <laughs> you might have a crush on Ash Tyler. Well, he looks better than he's ever looked before, mm. in my opinion. I just think he's a, he's good. He will let the hair grow out, and it was a good look. That's all I'm saying. And later on, Michael agrees with me. And what? So uh, there is there is a little bit of tension, though, amongst the high families, because uh, you remember Cole, who was the one who with the red paint on his face, who tricked... Uh, both Laurel and Voke into letting him on the ship, and then he paid their men and food to betray them, and then uh, did the whole thing. It was all jacked up, and he wound up taking over the Klingons, but then turning them into this internecine war. Anyway, he did, and uh, his father uh, is not happy about it. Volsha, uh, Vol Volsha, I believe is his name. Oh, Kolsha. He's the father of Cole. Yes, so the head of the Cole house. And he's like, hey, what's up with this human? We don't dig this human around you. He's gross. You're going to have him telling us what to do, and we're going to have to start speaking in Federation languages, and then there's a whole beef. And then Laurel's like, you should take that paint off your face because we're no longer different houses. We're one empire. And he's like, you take it off my face. And then Tyler, 
beautifully sculpted <laughs> Tyler, steps in. He's like, oh, yeah, she's the chancellor. She doesn't get her hands dirty. That's what I do. I'm the torchbearer. And he gets up in his face and he wipes some of the paint off. And he's like, yeah, take that. Uh, so anyway, uh, things are things are a little rough in the Klingon Empire. Meanwhile, back on Discovery, Amanda is telling Michael that she heard about Spock. She went to Starbase 5 to try and see Spock, which is where he had checked into the psychiatric unit. And they wouldn't let her see Spock. They wouldn't let him take his personal effects. They wouldn't let her uh, see the files. Essentially, all these things that you should be allowed to do as a, a family member of the person who's in the center. And so uh, Amanda stole Spock's medical file, and she asked Michael to unencrypt it, which uh, leads to some, some, some tough... Well, you know, Michael, you know, remember how she went to jail for breaking the rules? So she, I don't know how she feels about that. Back on the Klingon world, there's more of, like, Klingons not digging Tyler, including the uncle of Lorel, who he thinks, you know, should at least acknowledge his presence. And Lorel sort of makes, like, a come on to him. She's like, you know, if you really want to fit in here, you should love me the way Volk did. And he's like, oh, when you touch me, it feels like... Uh, sort of like an abomination or violation, and she gets upset and she storms out of the room. So all is not well within the nest either on Klingon. Back on Disco, Pike is sort of, he's not refusing, but he's saying like he's not going to help open this file. So Michael and Amanda have gone to Pike and they said, we want to do this, this thing, but Michael seems unwilling to do it without letting her captain know. And so Pike says, you know what, let me call ahead to Starbase 5. And he talks to Diego Vela, who's like a friend of his and who runs the Starbase. And he's like, hey, tell me what's going on with Spock. And Vela's like, oh, I can't tell you. It's uh, classified. Uh, uh, you know, and he's like, oh, you should be able to tell me I'm the captain. What's going on with Spock? And he says, well, listen, here's the deal. Your man is a wanted man. Because Spock apparently killed three doctors and escaped Starbase 5. Spock. Spock. Oh. Spock did this. Was that our Kirk compression? Ah. That was sort of my yeah. That we're we we're on the same. We page. are always. Uh, we're yeah, that's true. That's true. Hold on, let me sip from my set phasers mug. Mm. Tastes good, doesn't it? Mm. It tastes as good as it looks. All right. <laughs> uh, so that being what it is, they they all suspect some sort of weird foul play or some sort of cover up. And so Pike gives the file to Michael and says, "Hey, break into this and figure it out." As Michael is breaking to the file, they see she and Amanda have a discussion sort of about Spock, and Amanda reveal, uh, reveals that Spock had dreamed of this red angel years ago, the same red angel. He, he's the one who called it the red angel. And uh, he dreamed it the first time, the night apparently that Michael ran away from the house, Michael who had been attacked by the, uh, the Vulcan the logic extremists. And she ran away. And no one could find her, and they were all starting to think they should contact High Command. And then Spock came in and said he had a dream, and a red angel told him where to find uh, Michael. And they went, and they found her there. And Amanda and Sarek had always written this off as, as some sort of logic that Spock must have had more information or data and known where Michael was. But Spock always claimed that it was the red angel who had come to him and given him this information. He also has all these drawings that look like the Red Angel that also Michael saw when she was down on that weird dark matter asteroid. So it's a little strange, but they also discover that Spock's diagnosis is that he has a uh, extreme empathy deficit, a.k.a. psychopathy. And so they're sort of trying to figure out, did Spock actually kill those people? Or are they saying that he killed those people? Or... 
what is the deal there? Uh, and um, as they're sort of talking about this, Michael gets a call, and she has to go take it, and it's from, guess who? Sexy Tyler. And uh, Tyler's telling her, like, hey, I had to contact you. I just wanted to let you know how volatile things are on the Klingon world so you can pass it up the chain, the Federation. She says she likes the beard and that the Klingons are growing their hair because the war is over. And then they sort of share their stories of how their various difficulties are going. And there's a nice awkward moment where they're like, uh, uh, oh, I'm here. You look good, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Tyler's thinking about leaving, and Michael encourages him to stay because she thinks Laurel has faith in him. Uh, meanwhile, the trainee, the command training program trainees are on the bridge, and they're getting to do shadow exercises where they shadow some member of the senior staff on the bridge, and Tilly gets Pike, which is great. And Pike is telling her, hey, jump in the chair and let's do some captain-y stuff. But Tilly's being very much distracted by May, uh, the May that only she can see is very upset about Pike because he does not look like the, quote, captain that she's looking for. She said she should be meaner and so on and so forth. May starts acting out. Tilly's trying to keep it cool, but she is not able to keep it cool and eventually explodes at May and tells her to shut up, which they all think she was saying to Pike. And then Tilly sort of stammers um, and backs up, and then she says she quits and leaves, assuming quitting the command training program. Uh Back on Kronos, uh, Tyler notices some shadowy figures who are watching him. He trails them back, and he finds out that he is uh, being watched by Laurel's uncle. And he threatens him, and he says, hey, what are you watching me for? What secrets are you keeping? And Laurel's uncle's like, I have a secret, but I'm not supposed to tell you. But you know what? I'll let you know. And so they let him into a room in which I thought there was a throne. Twas not a throne. Twas a crib. An in crib. Twas a baby. A baby, who, <laughs> yeah, that's right. The baby had the same uh, skin. Uh, I don't want to call it an affliction because that, but it, it was an albino baby, so it was like Volk. And apparently, this is a baby that Laurel had, and it kept in secret from Volk and from uh, Tyler. And it was being watched by her uncle. It was like ex utero or something. She found out that she was pregnant apparently right before. Volk went into the human bone breaking whatever process and she knew that they couldn't activate and do all the stuff and have their Manchurian candidate thing work out if she was pregnant so she had the baby removed and it gestated ex utero and she had never met it she's never met it her uncle has been looking after it this entire time uh, and uh, uh, Lorel Tyler sort of says like when he saw the child he felt both had been finally met in a union and he sort of pledges that he will be a father to the child and that the the relationship between mm. him and Laurel he says the rest will come and they hold hands yeah because prior to that I think he'd said you know when she touched him he felt violated yes yeah and then suddenly he saw this child and he was like oh, yes, this is right, and I'm committed to you, yeah. and we will do this together. Well, he sort of, it's sort of like a, I know we're not in love now, but we need to take care of this child, and and therefore I will stay here and help raise him, and, and the love will come because of the child. It's basically the promise he's making. Uh, <clears throat> back on Disco, we have uh, Michael sort of uh, is still talking with Amanda, and she explains that, 
The psychopathy that Amanda is worried about, she thinks that because when he saw the red angel after that vision, he became withdrawn and started to lose his empathic side and that because uh, Sarek wanted him raised as a Klingon, she had withdrawn her human emotion from Spock and had sort of showered that down on Michael. Michael says, well, that's not why Spock became withdrawn because she says after she was attacked by the extremists, she felt that she had to protect Spock. You can hear that, right? After she was attacked by the extremists, she felt that she had to protect Spock by keeping him away. And so she had to, quote, wound him enough that he wouldn't follow her around because heretofore he had been her shadow, so to speak. And when Amanda says, what did you do? Michael can't even speak to it. And in the end, they sort of decide that they're both going to try to save Spock. But Amanda actually takes the chip and she's like, I'll save him. And she, I guess, just leaves, gets on a ship and gets out of there. Uh when Michael, who's sort of dealing with this, is is crying alone in her room, Tilly walks in from her weird episode, and uh, Michael's like, hey, give me a problem I can fix. And so Tilly kind of opens up to Michael about having been hit in the head by the dark matter substance and seeing the Ahern all around, and uh, May is there talking to her as that happens, and Tilly is crying because she couldn't get, she feels like she's going to get kicked out of the command training program and she lost it and she doesn't know what's going on with her mind and she's so worried and she doesn't want to go to sick bay. And that's when May says, well, there's water coming from your eyes. And Tilly speaks to her and says, it's crying. It's what people do when they're sad. And then May says, I'm going to come back and talk to you, sense into you later. And uh, a despondent Tilly is cheered up by Michael saying, well, if she doesn't know what crying is, it's not a figment of your imagination because you know this may a her. And if it was a a vision or or like a hallucination of someone that you knew, they would know what crying is, meaning that it must be something else. And she deduces through logic that when she held the piece of the rock, there was no reaction to her, but there was a reaction when it touched Tilly, and therefore it's a spore reaction. And Michael says, you don't need sickbay. You need stamets. Oh, yeah. Uh, so back on Kronos, uh, this is a pretty exciting moment. It's kind of like the thing that happens here. Uh, Tyler and Laurel are going to go see the baby together, and they're, like, cementing their union. And as they go to the chamber, they open the door, and who should be strung up, bleeding, and dead but Laurel's uncle? And the baby is gone. And they gasp. Dun-dun-dun! It's a shocker. And they turn around, and there's a holograph of old Kulsha, and he's holding the baby and he's like, mm, hey, this baby it looks pretty good, but I thought he could use some paint on his face, and he like paints the baby's face or whatever and he's like, hey, here's the deal I don't like Tyler and he's gross and I also don't like you, and here's what we're gonna do I'm gonna give you this baby if you sign over control of the Empire to me, you will meet me at your, your mansion and we will sign over the paperwork and then I'll give you your baby and get out of here so it's a kind of like exploitation when they do go to make the trade, the baby is being held back, and surprise, surprise, they're Klingons. It turns into an all-out brawl uh, because it's like they're going to, you know, everyone's going to kill each other. Anyway. So Laurel and Tyler do the old back-to-back, and they start whooping butt. It's a good fight scene. It's a great fight scene. There's like, oh, Laurel's doing it with her bat left, and Tyler's got daggers, and they're fighting, and they kind of kill the last henchman. But they have left Kolsha alive, and he shows up holding a weird instrument that looks like a sort of, I don't know, baton. He looks, do you not think he looks like something out of a 1980s cartoon? 
Yes, it did sort of look like He Man esque. It looked He Man esque, or like uh, one of those uh, a shake weight. I don't Mm. know. And uh, he's like, well, well, well. And then when they think like, okay, we're just gonna they're gonna converge on him and kill him and get the baby. That's when more recruits like his backup shows up there's more people now they're surrounded and he uses the thing in between the boom and it sends out this like flare and they're being paralyzed (laughs) and uh as they're being paralyzed he says yes it will spread to your lungs and your heart will stop but before we do that you're going to sign over this empire to me and he uses his dagger to take some blood from tyler as ink and he puts it on laurel's finger and has her touch the pad and he's like ah ha 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 i did it I almost thought it was like an old iPad or an iPhone kind of move. Yeah. Where I need like your stole finger thumb. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we kept the the papers for the Empire on this iPad, this iPhone 4, and uh, we need your thumbprint. Uh, take those gloves off. And uh, he's like, now my first act as Chancellor will be an execution. He's like, get ready to watch your Vogue die forever just as that happens the room starts to shake they look to see there's some weird light that shows up a hooded assassin arrives with some sort of like pet drone and boom 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 boom. everyone is killed Volk is put uh not Volk. kolsha is put into like a weird stasis Stasis yeah he's held up in the air and then the figure grabs the weird he-man thing and it unparalyzes them and their immediate reaction is to then both uh, go and kill Kulsha and uh, rip his entrails out. And then the figure reveals who it is and it is, hit me with the dun-dun-dun. Emperor Philippa Giorgio. Just being badass, you know, like how Giorgio do. And she's like, hey, I'm here and uh, because Starfleet sent me because I am now Starfleet's premier security consultant and she's like i'm here to protect the chancellor hood this woman must be chancellor and she talks to laurel alone and she's like here's what you gotta do you gotta do you have the ability to kill tyler because you're gonna have to kill him and she's like absolutely not and she's like you gotta kill that baby too because they're both weaknesses and and laurel says i will not choose between my empire and my child and Georgia says, I'm not giving you a choice. Ooh, well, let's leave that plot line right there. We get back to Disco. And um, Tilly is being examined by Stamets, and they find out that she's hosting a parasite, a, quote, multidimensional fungal parasite uh, that uh, is, like, smart and sentient. And so they use a thing, like some kind of weird, like, tube puller magic Puller thing and they whatever they pull the thing out of Tilly and it's a weird gross blob. It's basically and, a futuristic mason jar. Yeah, he takes out a mason jar with handles on either side and he pushes a blue light into Tilly. He says, Hey, this is gonna sting a little bit, and they rip a giant weird fungal blob out of her and they put it up in the air and they contain it in a containment field. And so t- while this is happening, the May vision is telling Tilly, like, you're my only chance, but Tilly's like, I'm not having it, I'm done being tortured by you so anyway uh back on chronos laurel is speaking to the assembled families and she says you know i had a baby by voke and uh but we were betrayed by tyler he killed uh he killed the baby and he killed uh all of whatever and Cole Shaw is the one who saved me when he tried to kill me and that's Long why Cole Shaw. 
Yeah, long live Kulshaw. He protected the Empire, and then she, like, holds up Ash's head and the baby's head. And she throws Ash's head into, like, the volcano pit. And she says, well, you know, just as Kulshaw sacrificed himself, I, too, have made sacrifices. I will give birth only once. And she says, now you are all my children, and you can call me mother. And they all go, yeah, in Klingon voice. Uh, <gasps> I... That was my uh, That was my I'm going to use that in quotable moments later uh, Meanwhile There's a cloaked ship Or like a stealth ship that Unstealths and on the bridge of it Is Giorgio and she's walking This duplex bridge is how I describe it She's walking on the top part of the duplex bridge And she walks over and who should we see but Tyler Holding a Klingon baby And they're around the planet of Boreth Which is like a Klingon monastery planet and so they're going to send the baby down there. The Klingon monks uh, never leave. So the baby will be safe, but it uh, it will never meet Tyler or Lorel ever. And uh, Georgie says, hey, I work for Section 31, which is like the top secret like CIA of the Federation. And she sort of offers him a position, sort of. She's like, hey, you should stick around. You know, we could use people like you. And then he's like, I'll think about it, I guess. And then she walks past another guy, sort of poorly bald, shaven man, whom we, I don't know if we're introduced with his name here, so I shall not reveal it. But he's definitely the captain of the ship because he's the one that tells him to go to warp after the baby is sent down to the planet. And he says, we got to work on your your pitch to new recruits. And she says, don't worry, he's in. Mm -hmm. And then he just smiles grimly into the distance. And that... Is season two, episode three. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try. I'm not good at throwing the papers. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Reckless is not a thing I do either. All right. Ah! Oh, come on. Literally all just fell right back. I'm not good at throwing papers. It's all for effect. It looked great. Here, it, sure, sure. Is this an obel for Charon? Did I get that right? Okay, listen. I don't know. We can we can argue about this all day. <laughs> Season two, episode four, is called an obel for Charon. Okay, I'd rather say Karen. Fine. Just, I don't just, know. What's your preference? Your preference is not Sharon. No. Is it Charon? Cha- Ch- uh, maybe Charon. Not right. Sharon. Well, it's spelled. All right, C-H- darling. I love all a right, white wine chardonnay. Okay, listen, Sharon, Karen, or Charon. They're getting a noble, okay? And I was hoping somebody would say something. Uh, a... Motorcycles are out. I was hoping somebody would say Charon in the episode, but no one did. No one does. Alas, it's a shame. Well, season, uh, so episode four begins with someone important transporting aboard the Enterprise. And who should it be? <gasps> None other than number one. Number one. Number one from the Enterprise and from mm. these. It's anyway, I, I don't know how many people know the original Star Trek pilot episode with Captain Pike and his number one, who was this uh, sort of like completely she she is like a Spock Kirk uh McCoy combination. She's like knows everything, no nonsense, shoots from the hip, smart, but also a little ornery kind of sidekick to the captain and uh and she basically runs the ship without pike and 
we get the feeling that she wouldn't need Pike to run the ship in any case. Anyway, she shows up on the Enterprise and she's updating Pike on how the Enterprise is jacked up and uh, that the they pull out the, they talk about view screens for a while, which is cute. It's like a cute little thing about how everyone else is using holograms. And he's like, I hate the holograms. And he's ripping them all out. We're going to use view screens. And she's been looking into these allegations of Spock. And apparently it's been like top level classified. Nonetheless, she's been able to get information. And he says, so how did you get it? And she's like, it's best if you don't know. Uh, so she gives him the information and she, he has to go to a senior briefing, uh, but she's left eating a hamburger with French fries with habanero sauce and apparently going to get a milkshake later. Anyway, I love number one and we will see more of her in the future. But that's sort of the cold open in, in the same, uh, time in engineering the parasite that was on tilly is now in the chamber the like driving chamber and apparently they're discovering that like the mycelial network might be its home it may not be from any place other than within the multi-dimensional mycelial network and tilly's sort of sad that she seems like she betrayed may but as she has her hand on the glass the blob like makes a hand shape that touches hers which freaks everyone out mostly me I'm, I yeah, might have, it creeped me out. You like yeah. you knew it was going to happen as soon as she put her hand on the glass. You were like, I was like something Wait weird, for it. but I wasn't thinking Wait it would be a hand. Ugh. Ugh. Anyway, this is why I can't watch scary movies. That scared me. Me too. <laughs> this is why you and I both watch rom coms. That's right, rom coms. Uh, okay, so the senior briefing—they're talking about the Red Angel. They're trying to figure out what is going on. We still just really don't know. And Michael says there's nothing in the universe like it. And uh, Linus is the name of the alien who had the cold in the 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 elevator a few episodes ago. I we figure out in this episode, he sort of corrects. You know, it's not nothing in the universe. It's nothing in the known universe that has these qualities. Saru is getting over some sort of awful cold. He calls it an acute rhinovirus. And the captain, when he comes in, tells Saru, go, go get some rest. You've been burning the camo at both ends. You look terrible. Uh, and Pike shares the info he's gotten about Spock from number one, basically that they've been able to find and track the shuttlecraft that Spock stole after he escaped Starbase 5. And Disco is on a course to intercept. And Michael asks, hey, can I recuse myself from this? She doesn't think she should talk to Spock or be part of the mission of meeting him. And Pike basically refuses her. As they're in the middle of this conversation, however, uh, the ship is pulled out of warp and, uh, you know, no one says red alert, but it's definitely a red alert kind of situation. And they rush out to the bridge and apparently they're in some sort of multi-phasic shield uh, or field that won't allow the ship to go to warp and they're being held there. And as they look out the viewfinder, they see a big red spherical thing. Yeah. And then we go to credits. Okay. So when we come back from credits, we find out this spherical thing defies all sense. Talk about known universe stuff. It is 565 kilometers in diameter or kilometers. If you're familiar with that word, I'm not because I'm from here. <laughs> it melds both organic and non-organic matter. And it is 100,000 years old. So this thing is weird <laughs> and it's huge. It's enormous. What? How old? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How could I? And it is 100,000 years old. 
My apologies for not giving it the gravitas that it requires. It was really and funny because I remember watching it and thinking, and it, they said, oh, it's 100,000 years old. And I was like, oh, Aki should have fun with that. It's funny because I wrote that down <laughs> specifically, <laughs> but I forgot to say it like uh, like I do. Uh, and the sphere is bri- vi- blah, 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 vibrating. And as they're discussing this, uh, Michael and Pike start speaking Klingon to each other, which is super weird. They're like, what, 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 huh? And then as they go back onto the bridge, the whole crew is speaking different languages to each other. Um, And uh, it happened right after the sphere started to actually respond to their hails. Uh, We find out it's not the crew that's changed language. It's the, the, uh, the international translator. Oh, my God. The universal translator that is on the fritz. The ship is getting all weird and tricky. And since everyone's speaking a bunch of different languages and they got a a virtual tower of Babel there on the bridge, Michael calls down to Saru, who, as we may remember from past episodes, knows 97 different Federation languages. He is still sick, but he shows up and he knows the languages and he's able to work out that there is a virus in the comms and in the system that is messing with the translator. He's able to get the the universal translator working on the bridge, but not in other parts of the ship. And so people need to go check things out. And he goes with Michael, even though he's still sick because he's the only one who could really help. She'll need a translator. Engineering, the lab is unaffected. And so Pike says, Hey, bring the spore drive online because a warp is not working. And this weird big sphere has got us in some kind of multiphasic field. And so they're about to do that. That is when Jet Reno, played by Tignataro, shows up. And she's like, hey, I got to work out some conduit bibbly-bobbly. She does some Star Trek jargon speak. And she and Stamets go at it. Stamets does not like her, and she does not like Stamets. But it's not personal. It's what they do. But it turns into a personal thing because she is sort of an engineer, and he feels that he is sort of a high-minded scientist. And they get into it about antimatter versus other matter i don't want to go into it here i mean i do but we don't have time anyway samus thinks he's getting the better of jet reno and jet reno says hey i'm uninsultable you cannot hurt my feelings and he tries and then she slams stamets with a stinger hit me with a stinger Ooh, that stings yeah she's like hey i can fix things with like gum and Duct uh, duct tape and samus is like well wait 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 uh, you know, Stamets has met uh, his match. Stamets, he has been bested. Uh, well, she's unaffected, and she's there to do to set up a firewall in the lab so that the lab doesn't get affected by the virus that's going on through the ship. And uh, Reno just goes back to work. Saru and Michael manage to fix the universal translator throughout the ship. Um, but just as they're about to do that, Saru collapses and he's like, it's not just a cold. And when they're about to talk about that, boom, there's a weird power surge on the ship and doors get shut and things get messed up and the EPS conduits are overloading and the virus is spreading through other systems in the ship. Uh, so now engineering is sealed off. And also there's like electrically charged energy moving through the walls or the air or something. And so, uh, now Reno, Stamets, and Tilly are trapped in there uh, with all this power, and so they're like, "We got to figure out a way to get this electricity out of the air because it could co- our oxygen could ignite and it could kill us all." She says something very uh, Reno-esque, like, if, "If our oxygen goes up, we'll be cooked faster than French fries in a French fryer or something like that." Uh, they manage to uh, put to funnel together some like. Uh, 
some of the spore tubes because it's can cause electricity to travel through them. And they're going to use the bulkhead as like a lightning rod to get all the lightning out of the air. Anyway, it works. They teamwork. They do it together. It's great. But, uh, but the, the like lightning moving through the room causes them all to pass out briefly when they come around, the spore is no longer in the chamber. And as they turn around to figure out, huh, where is it? It gloms onto Tilly's arm. Ah! Back on Tilly. Uh, okay, so while they're dealing with that, Michael is taking Saru to sickbay, and Saru is pretty upset. He uh, doesn't want to talk about things. He wants to help fix the ship. Pike shows up, and they're talking about it, and he says, listen, okay, I lied to you. It's not a cold. It's a condition called the Vaharai, and it is a condition that is unique to Kelpians, and it's terminal. There is no way not to die from it. Apparently, they're on their planet of Kaminar. They share the planet with the Ba'ul, who are the predator species of the homeworld, and they are sort of the prey species. And when they enter the Vaharai, it is how they know. It is a biological indicator that the Kelpians are ready to be, quote, culled by the Ba'ul. And their ganglia become inflamed, and they're under extreme duress and pain. And apparently, either they die from it, or they are driven mad by the symptoms of it, the pain and the 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 information. Uh so that's pretty sad. And everyone's really torn up about it. Meanwhile, back in the lab, they're trying to free Tilly from the parasite. And Tilly is in the, like, sort of isolation chamber. And apparently the 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 parasite slash mushroom is uh, sending psilocybin into Tilly. And so she is tripping hard. She's, like, half awake, half asleep, half talking, half dreaming. Meanwhile, on sickbay... Uh, they figure out that maybe the spear triggered the Vaharai, but they're not exactly sure how. And the virus is starting to destroy the ship, and life support is going down. And Saru thinks that they could develop a defense, a sort of like counter virus that will allow them to slow the virus down. And even though he's like on his last legs and could be dying soon, he's like, I'm maybe dying, but I am not dead. And so he and Michael will go and try to put together this counter virus. And so they're in the room working on the counter virus and they, they figure it out and it's slowly holding at bay the virus that's moving through all their systems. And Michael and Saru talk and Saru sort of admits that he'd never told Michael about the Vaharai because he didn't want to show weakness to someone who was close to him and had been fighting there for so long for their, what he called the, his, her next breath to remain alive. And his species all about the surrender to the Vaharai. And, um, he asked Michael, he says, listen, I'm going to die. I've made uh, precise logs, personal logs of my time on Starfleet, and I'd love for you to catalog them when I'm gone so that the Kelpians are no longer under General Order 1. And uh, Saru could never return home for that reason. Uh, also, at this time, he mentions offhand for the second time that he keeps seeing weird ultraviolet flashes because the Kelpians can see in other ranges of light than humans. And... Then we go to the bridge, and they are trying to disrupt the field because the, the countervirus has worked well enough that they're able to bring shields up, but they are not able to do that, and they're about to lose Spock on their long-range sensors. And so Michael goes to engineering to see if she can help with getting the spore drive online some way that they can get out of there. In the lab, when Michael gets there, Tilly is still in trouble. She's still freaking out. And they're trying to come up with ideas. Michael's unable to get into the lab because it's sealed off because of the power surges. But as they're trying to figure out a way to get the 
to like speak to this parasite, uh, Stamets says, oh, we can use this harmonic interface will allow us to speak to the parasite, figure out what it wants so that we can maybe negotiate with it. And that gives Michael a brilliant idea. So Saru is going to, I mean, Stamets is going to work on Tilly with the harmonic interface and Michael runs back to, uh, to Saru and she's like maybe we we need to try to maybe it's a language maybe it's trying to speak to us through the virus and Saru goes of course I've been a fool these ultraviolet patterns they're repeating it's like a language it's trying to speak to us uh this is not first contact this is last contact this this thing is alive this sphere and it's dying and it's trying to communicate with us before it dies that's what he says meanwhile back in the lab uh with Tilly they're not able to get the harmonic uh, interface, the harmonic interface to work. And in order to, to get it to work, their theory is that they need to boost it with cortical implants. However, they do not have laser scalpels and all this stuff, and they're stuck in the lab. And so they're going to have to do, they're going to have to literally drill into Tilly's skull and place the implant in there. What the what? So, does not sound like fun. It doesn't sound like fun. It doesn't look like fun when it happened. And, uh, this was a sweet moment, though. It is a super sweet moment. We're going to get there. We're not quite there. Because back on the bridge, um, the sphere's temperature is spiking internally, and it's about to explode. And it's and so Pike is preparing to fire on the sphere and because it looks like it's going to attack them. But Saru and Michael manage to interrupt, and they communicate that the sphere is dying, and they say the sphere is trying to share something before it dies. It's trying to remember, trying to share its story. But its knowledge could be so fast, so vast, so its knowledge. I'm so excited because I'm such a nerd. Slow down, Burmese. Its knowledge is so vast that it is overpowering Discovery's computers, and that in order to to get all the information from it, they have to let down their shields and let the sphere, like, speak computer to computer. In the lab, we're about to do the procedure on Tilly. She's on, like, a standing operation table, and Stamis walks over and says, hey, sing your favorite song, and Tilly starts singing Space Oddity, and Stamis starts singing with her, and as they're singing along, he drills into her head. And then Reno, matter-of-factly, kind of just walks over and places a cortical <laughs> implant in her. Uh, but they are able to speak to May, and May says she is from a series called the Jasep, and they lived inside the mycelial network, but then they were their, their, their ecosystem, their home, was being destroyed by an alien intruder who was ravaging it, and they wonder who it is, and, she, and May says, it was Stamets, it was the discovery, it was the jumps. And this, he says, I'll do anything I can to repair it. Just let Tilly go. And uh, May, through Tilly, talking through the cortical implants and the harmonic interface, says, no, I have other plans for Tilly. And psh, psh, breaks three of, three of the restraints. And then the weird thing, like, starts to swallow Tilly whole and creates a cocoon of, like, around Tilly on the floor. On the bridge, the sphere is approaching solar temperatures, getting very dangerous. So Pike says, okay, let's give your idea a plan. He says, I'm going to lower the shields. But he tells Detmer, prepare to eject the core and send it towards the thing, which will destroy it. And then we'll have to ride the shockwave of the explosion away as, as quickly as we can to try and stay alive. Because at this point, they've, they've got nothing left. And they've lost Spock altogether. And when they let down the shields, transmission does indeed happen. And once the transmission is complete, the sphere does explode. Boom! But... 
the sphere in its last nanosecond of existence. After sending all that information over to the disco, reverse the polarity on this multiphasic field and pushed disco just outside of the range of the explosion. It saved them with its last act. In the lab, Stamets and Reno are able to cut Tilly out of the cocoon, and she's, like, pretty freaked out. Um, and they're pretty high because there's now there's like spores in the room and Tilly's seeing things, but they don't see that. Anyway, on the bridge, Saru is still dying. And so he asks Michaels to take him to his quarters and the crew does a really solemn, they all stand out of respect for him as he's leaving, being carried out. And we get to Saru's quarters, which is one of the coolest sort of scenes I thought on the ship. He has this beautiful quarters that like everything's covered in grass and he sleeps on a grass bed and he's got all these beautiful flowers and he's telling Michael, I brought these seeds from uh, Kaminar. Don't really have it. You know what I was thinking of earlier? Just a quick timeout. I think I was thinking Kolinar, which is the oh, Vulcan, Vulcan like logic yep. oh, procedure. Yeah. Yep. That's what it was. Not, not uh, Worf. Anyway, so he's got all these seeds that he brought with him from Kaminar, and he's basically created a beautiful garden across his entire place, and he's lying down on his bed, and he's talking to Michael, and he tells Michael, get the knife out of the drawer. It's a Kelpian knife, and here's what you have to do. You have to cut off my my ganglia, killing me so that you can spare me of any any more pain and prevent me from going mad. And they have, it's pretty hard. Michael starts crying and they share that they both view each other as family. And, and he says that she, are you hearing all that? Should I pause? All right. Well, he says that she replaced his sister Serana for him in his life that she left back on the planet that he was never able to say goodbye to. And so he tells Michael to promise him that if she's given the chance, she will find a way to repair her relationship with Spock. They say a final tearful goodbye to each other. And as Michael lifts the knife to Saru's ganglia, they fall off and he's not dead. And they're like, what the what? Well, Saru, after the ganglia fallout, he's like his his vitals have gone back to normal, but he's no longer crippled by this sort of fear. In fact, he says he feels a kind of power, and the doctor certifies him for duty. He's fine. Uh, and the reports coming in from the science team report that they had got all this crazy information from the sphere. It's not just languages. It's everything the sphere has encountered in 100,000 years. I do right? Okay. Uh and so it's a revelation, but Saru mentions that it's also a troubling revelation for on the planet Kaminar, the Kelpians believe in this, uh, oh no, I forgot the word for the thing that happens, Vaharai. The Kelpians believe in this Vaharai. They surrender to it. They they believe in this cycle of death and that the the Ba'ul then are able to prey on them. They, they call it the great balance. And it turns out it's false because he did not die in the Vaharai. And this relationship between the Kelpians and Ba'ul is wrong. And so he questions whether or not to continue to obey General Order One. And uh, it's just a big question for the future of the, the Kelpian people and the planet in general. In the Red Room, Michael shows up and, and Pike is sort of listening to some of the stuff from the Sphere. He calls them the Dead Sea Scrolls. And 
what they realized is that the last thing the sphere encountered was Spock flying past it. So now they have a beat on Spock. And that's when Pike says your favorite thing that I didn't write down, and I'm so sorry, where he says, set a course and don't spare the horses, uh, which is just very, just so cowboy. Mm. It's almost it's Kirkian. It's almost Kirkian, but not quite, mm-hmm. not all the way Kirk. But yeah, yeah, he doesn't mention poker at the same time. So uh, uh, he's like, you know what? I was thinking about what you were saying, Michael, and if we run into Spock, I'll keep your praise, but I don't want to force you to meet him. And she says, you know what? I've actually had a change of heart because I talked to my friend Saru, who was basically dying, and I've decided if we're going to save Spock, I'm going to be part of it no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it gets, I'm going to help to save Spock. Meanwhile, in the lab, Tilly is seeing all these spores coming out of the weird cocoon that's still on the floor that she was just cut out of, and Reno and Samus are completely high. They are talking about each other's harmonic auras, and they realize they've been dosed. They've been dosed by the by the the multi-phasic spore thing. So they're both high. And so Stamets has Reno slap him so that he can remember and he gets like an antidote to the high thing. And when they both are sort of back to being somewhat sober, they're like, now we got to get to Tilly. And as they look around, Tilly's gone. She gone. She gone. And as they look inside the cocoon, they cut open the cocoon and the cocoon is empty. Here endeth episode four of season two of Star Trek Discovery. An obol for Sharon. Kush Haran. Kush Haran. How do you like me now? I threw those papers. Yes, you did convincingly. I sure did. That was brilliant. You know what I realized? Is it time for stats? I think it's time for stats. I think it is time for stats. Set phases to stats. There was only one yellow alert announced in this. Uh, I think there was. There were definitely a couple of red alerts, but they were never like announced as red alerts. But I also realized we really should have been keeping in our stats the number of times we hear Klingon Maktajaj. Yeah. Because I think we might have heard it for the last time here. <gasps> uh, but there was one Klingon Maktajaj in episode three. And if we never hear it again, I will be truly, truly sad. But fortunately, I know how to say it, and I can say it to myself. And to you, Steph. And to you, listener. I'm sorry. I have no control. Quotable moments? Yes, let's. Quotable Um, moments! Have you got anything? Well, you said mine earlier, and mine was, uh, set a course, don't spare the horses. That's right. Well, okay, so the one I chose was from episode three, it's Laurel when she's telling the whole fiction about the baby and Ash Tyler. But I love it when she says, she says, I will only have a bare child once. She says, now you are my children as I raise this family to greatness. Do not refer to me as chancellor, for I deserve a fiercer title. From this point forth, you may call me mother. I kind of want to like just a huge power chord on electric guitar when she says that. <laughs> <laughs> like 80s power chord. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, listen, I don't want to get on a high horse here because we're about to say goodbye, but I think it's time for a quick clopla, clopla corn. Clopla corn. You think, do you? Kapla! Okay, listen up, people. 
I get a lot of pushback on Discovery, and I like to go to the mattresses for Discovery. People tell me, listen, Discovery's fine, it looks good, and the characters are great, but the plots are too one note. There's no subplots. It's not like the original Star Trek. There's not a lot. There's just one story, and they go through the whole time. Well, listen up, people. Did you not just hear me try to review these last two episodes? Not only was there, like, the Klingon fight for control, there was Tilly's thing with the parasite. There was the sphere. There was Amanda showing up, and where is Spock? I mean, there's like a billion things going on at once. There's like four plot lines. So if your argument has been that Discovery is a subpar Star Trek because it doesn't have multiple plot lines, then either you're lying or you ain't listening. Kapla. 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 Thank you. I just had to get them up. I had to get that off my chest. Rightly so. Yes. Yeah. I have, I have, I have things to say. I'm going to say more stuff. We thought Kapla Corner was over, but no, I'm, I'm, I got a head full of steam. I'm not going to spare the horses. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what I... Next time on Set Phasers. Yes. Next time on Set Phasers, we will be discussing episodes five and six, which are named respectively Saints of Imperfection and Sounds of Thunder. Uh, and they both are very interesting episodes if their names are, are interesting in and of themselves. So, Indeed they are. Yes, tune in next Friday for a, f- a future installment of Set Phasers in which we discuss those episodes. And we're crushing through season two as we, we continue on our accelerated pace so that we can be on target for mid-October when season three begins. Four weeks left. Dun, dun, dun. Four weeks left. Too many episodes left. <laughs> Okay, well, listen, uh, if you've enjoyed what you've been hearing, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you enjoyed the program, you can catch us every Friday at 8 p.m. on Facebook Live or as a podcast every Monday, wherever podcasts come from. And if you are getting them as podcasts, please rate and subscribe us. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Set Phasers Podcast. Feel free to follow us and join in the conversation of all things Trek and tell your friends. Yes, and if you want to support our continuing mission to discover what Discovery has in store for us, we'd only be delighted. You can patronize us, we can take it, by going to patreon.com slash setphasers. Until next time, I'm Steph Mams. And I am Aki Burmese. And this has been Set Phasers, a highly illogical Star Trek podcast. Computer. End program. (laughs) 